Well, good evening, everyone. It is the appointed hour, and we want to respect everybody's time. So uh, we'll go ahead and uh, get started. My name is Stephen Grant. I'm one of the pastors at First Presbyterian Church of Benita Springs. And as we begin, we first want to give thanks and praise to one almighty God for making this evening possible and his providence. Here we all are. But we also want to give thanks to the good folks of Bay Presbyterian Church who opened up their lovely church for us to use tonight to hold this event. Uh, any of you who are uh, veterans of this event will remember that in past years, we've met over at First Presbyterian Church on, uh, for many, many hours on Saturday, but a number of things conspired to prevent us from doing that this year. So uh, when I mentioned that to your pastors here at Bay, they immediately said, we would be delighted to host it. So thank you, Bay Presbyterian Church, for, uh, for opening up your church for us. And, oh, by the way, you folks are not the only ones here because there is another hundred or so people who are in that camera over there. So welcome to all of you. Uh, we're glad that you are able to join us for this event. You're very much a part of what we're doing here, and we, uh, we hope that you also have a splendid experience um, here at our seminar. Now, uh, not for the folks on, on, the, on the live stream, but for all of you, probably the most important information, if you're looking for the restrooms, they're around that corner right yonder, okay? We are uh, blessed with uh, two uh, speakers tonight. I'll say a little bit more about them in a few minutes. But when they have finished both of their talks, that is then when we'll have a question and answer time. So rather than to start asking questions after Dr. Reeder's presentation, we'll go ahead and... Uh, allow Dr. Lobeck to give his, and then we'll have a chance for, um, for questions and uh, sort of have a panel discussion with the questions that you might have. Well, before we do anything, we really need to go to the throne of grace and prayer, and I've invited our host pastor, Pastor Patrick, if he would come up and offer a blessing on our event tonight. Thank you, Pastor, and indeed, welcome, everyone. Let's pray. Almighty God, our Father in heaven, we do give you praise. We thank you for your glorious blessings of life and for the opportunity to talk about things of substance here this evening. We're grateful for these, your servants, that you have brought, and we pray that you will bless them, use them mightily in our lives. For we pray, Father, that we would not leave here merely being more knowledgeable. We pray that by your grace, we'll be better equipped for works of ministry and that through this event, you might accomplish your good kingdom's work in this world, beginning right here in Bonita Springs, but extending to the furthest reaches of the planet. So we ask your blessing on them as they speak to give them unction of your spirit and give us ears to hear and hearts to receive. For this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I am always uh, tremendously honored to uh, each year being asked to emcee this event and be able to introduce our speakers. And um, especially tonight, I mean, all of us have had people in our lives that we look up to as, as mentors, as those who have impacted our life in the most profound ways. And for me personally, both our speakers tonight fit those categories. 
We start with uh, Dr. Reeder, whose uh, some bio information is there, but let me just say, my brother, when I worked on my uh, uh, doctor of ministry degree at Westminster Theological Seminary, which by the way, next to marrying my wife was the smartest thing I ever did, was pursue a doctor degree at Westminster Seminary. And um, Dr. Reeder was one of my professors. And that's where we met. And his class was life-changing. And his friendship and his encouragement and his insights continues to bless my ministry even as we speak. So I invite everybody to join with me in a very warm and enthusiastic welcome of Dr. Harry Reeder. Last night, just kind of a, a Patrick and John said, can you come down a night early and let's talk about uh, lessons on leadership. And so we did that. We did it by examining a battle. And that's the Battle of Gettysburg and did some analysis and critiques and tried to learn some things from it. And uh, that was a lot of fun last night. But I was looking forward so much to our time together. I always look forward to spending time with Stephen and, uh, and clearly with Peter. And then John and I went, uh, graduated from the same seminary, Westminster South. And um, he, as I told the guys today, John was the great expert on small group discipleship. And everything I learned about small group discipleship, pretty much, uh, I learned from him in terms of um, what he was doing at the time and what I learned from him. And then I had the privilege to watch Patrick uh, not only get ordained and go through seminary, but also saw him have a uh, absolutely phenomenal ministry. Oh, I got to cut this off. Yeah. These things are, they scare me. And he was, he prayed with the elders and he was on his way to the pulpit and the sound guy flipped the, micro, the lavalier mic on, but he didn't see the pastor before he got to the pulpit, nature called, so he did a detour to the bathroom and while everybody's in prayerful meditation preparing for worship, they begin to hear these strange sounds, uh, kind of like cascading waterfalls and uh, elevator music and things like that. But what got him in trouble when he finally got to the pulpit, everybody is falling out of the pew, dying laughing. So much for preparation for worship. <laughs> and um, the reason why was because when he was leaving the restroom, he stopped off at the, uh, he stopped off at the uh, uh, laboratory and was, washing his hands, looked in the mirror and just moved by the moment. He straightened his tie, looked in the mirror and said, go get him, tiger. <laughs> that was the end of his ministry. Uh, that was pretty much it. Uh, tiger had to find a new uh, park. And uh, so uh, 
So I've always been afraid of these things and uh, certainly don't carry them into the bathroom with me. Um, but I want to thank you for the opportunity to be here. I do deeply appreciate Stephen's ministry and the hospitality we've enjoyed in these conferences that I've had the privilege to participate at First Presbyterian. But of course, th throughout the years, the opportunity to speak here and uh, co-minister with uh, John and now uh, Patrick's presence here is just an extraordinary blessing. I know a number of members here by virtue of other uh, reasons, and so it's, uh, it's always been a blessing. Now, I've got an assigned topic tonight, and this is normally in these conferences that we do, I kind of have the, the sermon uh, deal. So I kind of do an expositional sermon around a theme. But I've been given a series of questions to address, and then Peter is, is going to follow me, and then number one, correct all of my mistakes. He, and he's, he does it so graciously. I mean, you know, Peter corrects you and, you know, he kind of slices your arm off and it feels good. Uh, I mean, it feels so good you say, hey, Peter, that was great. Why don't you take the other one off? And uh, so he's got, a, he's got a very gracious way of doing that. And I'm sure I'll give him plenty of opportunity to do it. Uh, but my assignment was to look at a couple of things in particular. One is our present cancel culture, which is canceling um, historic figures not simply pulling down their statutes, but, but uh, eradicating them from history, eradicating them from the places that they have been affirmed and what we have learned from them. Well, it's obvious that I, being a historian, I utterly despise that because um, I, I love the fact that uh, there's this wonderful discipline called historical theology, part of which is you learn the providence of God by examining what he has done in history. It, it sounds trite, but history is his story. And looking at it through the lenses of scripture, you see much because actually history is a record of God's providence. And God reveals himself in creation and God reveals himself in his word and God reveals himself in his providence. That's why your Bible is full of historical stories. History is crucial. Your Christianity is not what the 19th and 20th century liberals said. Your Christianity is not a collection of fables and myths with some reference to history that you now, when you encounter that, become God's word to you, but that's not historically accurate. On the contrary, it's clear that Christianity is rooted in time and space and history. I know you do the Apostles' Creed likely in your, uh, in your um, services from time to time anyway. And uh, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried, ascended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead, he ascended into heaven, and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From then he shall come. To, from there he shall come to judge the living and the dead. That's history. That's history. That's not doctrine. That's history. Those are historical events affirmed in the Bible that are true in space and time. Doctrine is what he did on the cross, a vicarious substitutionary atonement. Doctrine is what the resurrection of Christ proclaims. 
Doctrine is what is rooted in the historical event, and when you remove the historical event, then you have removed the foundation of all doctrine. And uh, all scripture is inspired by God, and that includes the historical accounts that are there. And uh, the Bible doesn't become the Word of God. The Bible is the Word of God. The Bible doesn't contain the Word of God. The Bible is the Word of God. This is God's Word, and it is accurate in all that it reveals and affirms. All Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable. All of those historical events that we are to learn from. What do we learn? Doctrine. All Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for doctrine. Then application. All scriptures inspired by God is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. So how do you get a changed life? From the doctrine. What is the doctrine rooted in? The historic reality of God's word. So when you find all of this cultural chaos that you're involved in, I do a program called Today in Perspective. It's a 10-minute analysis of current events from a biblical world in life view with gospel solutions. And one of the things that I keep trying to tell people as we're looking at what is occurring and what is taking place is that what you are seeing in life is actually occurring in life. And what is God doing and what would God call us to do in response to it? So what I would suggest to you is that you are now encountering a culture that is in abject rebellion against God. Romans 1, re, Romans 1 reveals something. Romans 1 reveals that whenever you remove the salt and light of the Christians who are discipled in biblical churches, then the inevitable result is described in Romans 1, 18 through 31. And that, uh, I'm sorry, 18 through, 30, 18 through 34. And that inevitable result is a death spiral, a cultural death spiral. And it will be marked by sexual promiscuity, then sexual perversion, and then cultural social approval, whereby you call light darkness and darkness light. In other words, we are born sinners, and our total depravity will inevitably become absolute depravity unless God's grace restrains it. And God's grace restrains a culture by having, number one, common grace that's recorded in the effects of what God is doing in history. As he, in common grace, is restraining sin in society. And then, of course, transforming grace, which is changing sinners. And when a sinner changes, their life changes. And when their life changes, marriage changes, family change, the way you do business changes. So as the church does its mission of evangelism and discipleship, it turns out Christians that become salt of the world and salt of the earth and light of the world. But if the church is not doing its job, then you don't get the salt and the light and the common grace and the transforming grace, so the culture goes into a death spiral. 
And when you read things such as sexual promiscuity or sexual perversion, men with men, women with women, when you read that, does that bring God's judgment? Yes, but that's not what the text is actually telling you. The text is telling you it already is God's judgment. Those other than depart from me, the most terrible words in the Bible for me are simply this. God gave them over to the desires of their heart, which is going to be a sin-motivated rebellion of cosmic treason against God. And it will be manifested in numerous ways. I'm going to be speaking about that at Ligonier next week and how it's manifested in the rebellion against gender as well as sexual ethics as, as uh, humanity strikes out against God. Well, one of the ways to get rid of the witness of God that brings grace common and transforming is to get rid of history, to remove it. I mean, I know you've all heard the statement, if one does not learn from history, they're doomed to repeat it. You can add something else. If you don't learn from history, you're not only doomed to repeat it, it's going to be worse than the history you're denying because there is so much to learn from it, both negatively and positively. That's what God calls us to do with it. So what is it that we are to do with the cancel culture? And how do we respond to it? Well, I'm going to briefly say two things, how to handle the cancel culture, and then I'm going to tell you about a biblical cancel culture that you want to implement uh, the one you want to negate, the other one you want to implement. But where I'm supposed to start out is this, this whole issue uh, right now. If you have any patriotic inclinations, you can get ready in the public square to be identified as a, and particularly if you're of European stock, as a white Christian nationalist. And that's dirty language. That's, that's code language for the... Um, the World War II uh, perversion of the eugenics movement, which was uh, the Aryan movement. And so that's what one is identified. If there's any patriotic inclination, any patriotic comments, that becomes, a, uh, that becomes the, uh, the slur that is used. So that brings me to three questions to answer in this first part. Number one is this, is there a place is there a place in society, or should there be a place in society, and is there a place in your life for something called Christian patriotism? Is there a place, is there a biblical warrant for that? Now let me be abundantly clear. <laughs> the nation of which I am a citizen ultimately is the kingdom of God. My citizenship is in the kingdom of heaven. But I also have a functional citizenship in whatever nation God births me in. And that is a functional citizenship that my ultimate citizenship informs me how to live. And how do I live? Well, there's a reason that John Newton wrote Pilgrim's Progress. I am an alien. I am a pilgrim. I, I am going to be a good citizen in the country where I reside. But as a good citizen in the country I reside, it is King Jesus and the kingdom of God that directs how I live in that kingdom 
for my King, Jesus Christ. Is there room in that for patriotism concerning your nation? Well, I would rapidly say yes. I would rapidly say yes as I look at the Bible and we get to the New Testament and God has now divorced Israel. That's what Jeremiah and Isaiah both tell us. Uh, they would not receive the Messiah that he ordained to come through them from whom all the nations of the world are to be blessed. That was the promise to Abraham. All the nations, our first missionary uh, our first missionary conference was in the covenant with Abraham. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to give you a seed. I'm going to give you a land. I'm going to make your family a nation, a covenanted nation with me. And through that, I'm going to bring a Messiah who is going to build a royal nation from all the nations of the world where the elect will be collected uh, as he does his glorious work. And as that is established, of course, you can see the love that would develop for the covenanted nation of Israel. Now, with all due respect, and uh, I want to make abundantly clear, there has never been another nation that is a covenanted nation with God. There have been nations that have been highly influenced by Christianity and have made significant commitments but there has been no other nation that is covenanted with God. That was Israel. God's present covenant nation is his elect and that are being gathered from every tribe and nation. Peter calls them the royal nation made up of aliens and exiles. We are pilgrims. This world is not our home. We're on mission, on message, and in ministry for our king beginning in the nation of which we participate and then to all the nations of the world as we fulfill the Great Commission. So that is how we look at ourselves. Now, in that context, is there room? Well, in the New Testament, God's royal nation has been inaugurated with the resurrection and ascension of Jesus and the Great Commission as the gospel goes from Jerusalem, Acts 1 through 8, to Judea and Samaria, Acts 9 through 12, and then to the whole world, Acts 13, to this very moment. As the body of Christ is fulfilling the call of its king to, take the, to fulfill the mission by proclaiming the gospel-driven whole counsel of God to every single nation. And once I am converted and brought to Christ and been made a kingdom of God, is there a place and room for love of the country where I dwell? Well, I think you take a look at Paul, who tells us that in Christ there's neither Jew nor Gentile, who tells us there's a royal nation that God is gathering. But at the same time, you see his love for his nation of birth, all the way to the point that he is willing to say something that is beyond my comprehension. He says, I would willingly be accursed for the salvation of my brethren according to the ethne, according to the flesh, and according to my nation. He understands the covenant people of God are being brought from all the nations, but that did not dismiss his love for Israel. On the contrary, he was willing to sacrifice himself for eternity 
I am willing to be anathematized if by doing so they would be saved. What greater love can you have for your nation than to be willing to cast yourself into everlasting condemnation if it would save you? And then we go to great movements of God throughout history, not the least of which is the Reformation. Did Calvin have a patriotism, a Christian patriotism? Now, I say that carefully. Christian patriotism. I will confess to you, I was not the brightest bulb in the chandelier in high school. Uh, I didn't read, I didn't study, I just played baseball, basketball, and football, and I went to class because they wouldn't let me play if I didn't go to class. And probably other than math and science, sorry, doctor, other than math and science, my most despised class was English. Uh, I just wanted to do, just let me talk Southern and don't bother me. And uh, I'll dangle my gerunds and hang, or hang my gerunds and dangle my participles and split my infinitives. That just didn't matter. And so, um, but I do remember this. In a sentence, the most powerful word in the sentence is the modifier. It's not the noun, it's not the verb, it's the adjective, and it's the adverb. That's what defines it. That's why I've carefully said, Christian patriotism, because I do believe there is a sinful, non-Christian patriotism that we must, as believers, avoid at all costs. But there is a Christian patriotism. Paul had it in his relationship with Israel as the gospel was going to all the world. You come to the Reformation. Now, who is the premier reformer? And I know people are going to say Luther, uh, but uh, how about the real one, and that's Calvin. You do know, we call him John Calvin, but you do know his name was Jean Calvin. He was French. And he had this unbelievable missionary movement that went throughout all the world. He even sent a team of somewhere around 100 to what today is Rio de Janeiro in Brazil. He had a heart to send missionaries. He was collecting all of these Reformation refugees. He discipled them and was sending them to all the nations. But France, he sent over 1,300 preachers and missionaries. He didn't send, up, he didn't send anywhere near that to any other nation. Secretly, he would leave Geneva because his elders told him not to do it. He would leave Geneva to go on trips throughout France to encourage the pastors who were beginning to experience the effects of the Counter-Reformation and the order of the Jesuits. And he went at the risk of his own life to assist them. He, his heart for his nation was clear. One of the men that he discipled was a man by the name of, who came uh, as a refugee and, uh, and during that time of refuge in Geneva uh, was powerfully discipled by Calvin and, uh, and others. And what was his name? His name was John Knox. He translated a study Bible that settled America. It was called the Geneva Bible. He, uh, uh, he gave the English translation of it. 
He pastored the International Church in Geneva. But he continually went before Calvin and said, I must go back to Scotland. Death warrants had been issued for his life. But this is what he said. Give me Scotland or I die. You see his Christian informed patriotism and his love for Scotland. You could see the same thing, and I could give you quote after quote of a major reformer. His name was Zwingli. He died as a volunteer chaplain serving in the army for his country. This astonishing reformer. Or Luther himself. His love for Germany is well documented. Without, I mean, Luther is the one really that made a Germany out of all of its tribal uh, divisions left over from the days of the barbarians. He did it by numerous things, not the least of which was translating the Bible into a German that became the national German language. His love for his country was very clear, not to the exclusion of the Great Commission to all the nations, but as a priority. It didn't stop with his gospel work, didn't stop with Germany, but it began there. And then, of course, uh, one of my favorites is, of, is Cranmer and Latimer and Ridley. It is said that Cambridge birthed the reformers and Oxford burned the reformers. And that is exactly what happened to the three of them. But don't miss what they said. As Cranmer is in the prison and will follow them to the stake about a year later, Cranmer is watching them. And here are these octogenarians that are tied to a stake and about to be burned to death for saying something that you and I hear regularly in your congregations, those represented here. Sola fide, we're saved by faith alone. Soda gratia, we are saved by grace alone through faith alone. Sola Christus, we're saved by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone. Sola scriptura, the scripture alone is our rule of faith and practice. Sola Deo gloria, we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for God's glory alone. Those Reformation declarations and the sovereignty of biblical magisterium, not ecclesiastical church magisterium, but the rule of God's word. They, like Luther, said, here I stand. And as they're being put to death, there's an amazing statement that many people pass over as we stand marveling at their bravery. As Ridley is being tied to the stake, he says to his captors, tie my bonds tight, lest at the moment of testing, I flee my post. Tie my bonds tight. When Hugh Latimer hears his colleague make the declaration and the request. 
he immediately went into his pastoral mode and he said to him from the other side of the post, Master Ridley, be of good cheer. Play the man today. And by God's grace, we shall light a candle for Christ that shall never be put out in all of England. The nation that was killing them with its monarch. They loved for the sake of the gospel today. Yes, there is a biblically framed, biblically directed, biblically identified and defined Christian, Christ-centered love that one can give to their nation. There's much more I'd love to say on that, but I've got to edit because you've got to hear some great words from someone much more brilliant in just a minute. But pastor, it begs another question. Can Christians, can Christian patriotism be distorted? Yes. Can Christian patriots be deceived and manipulated? Yes. Christian patriotism must never, never become an instrument whereby Christianity becomes a tribal religion. Jesus is not just Lord of this country. He is Lord of all. He is not just king of his people in this nation. He is king of all. We must never in our functional Christianity reduce Christ to a tribal God for America. He is King of kings and Lord of all, and is to be proclaimed to all the nations. But we not only can be, we can be deceived into making Christianity a tribal nation, a tribal, a tribal religion of one nation, and Jesus a tribal God of one nation, but we can also be deceived into nationalistic idolatry whereby in the name of an exceptional nation, and I do not deny in God's providence the exceptional dynamics throughout this nation. I'd love to study them as a historian. That was my life, uh, 16th, 17th, 18th, 19th uh, history. I, I loved it. I loved to study. There is no doubt the astonishing things that happened. And it was, it was phenomenal. But you worship the God of providence not the consequences of providence in a nation. So we cannot have a distorted Christian patriotism from a tribal religion of Christianity or a nationalistic idolatry, and you must always be on your guard for those non-statesmen but politicians who know how to play upon your love for your country and know how to manipulate you into supporting policies and activities in the name of Christian patriotism that actually do not fit into a biblical world and life view, which is why you need to pray for, you need to uphold, and you need to support every pastor who is teaching you the whole counsel of God so you are not praying for the deceptors. And the deceptors are not only in pulpits, the deceptors are in elected offices. Right now, this culture is in a chaotic culture. This is how I identify it. 
In its rebellion of cosmic treason, we are in a culture of insanity, absurdity, immorality, lethality, all rooted in profitability. Let me say it again. We live in a culture of cosmic treason against God, denying the, the God who set up his creation by denying all the binaries that he put into his creation. And that's because we will not have him as God in our sinful hearts. And when common grace is not at work to restrain it or redeeming grace to change heart, then you will see the death spiral of a culture and you're right in the middle of it. This is a culture of insanity. We actually perform operations under the rubric of gender reassignment. That is a total myth and fabrication. Let me tell you, every what happens, and, and this, I'm sorry, I'm, getting, I'm, I'm going ahead to Ligonier right now. Let me stop here. But I will say, make this, that is nothing more, particularly in, um, in runaway counselors and the medical uh, profession, that is nothing more than sanctioned, legally sanctioned child abuse through surgical mutilation and then, um, and then um, chemical manipulation to put into the bodies of men, uh, of young boys, the very drugs we use to castrate sex criminals. And we call that medicine. It is a culture of insanity. It is a culture of absurdity. We're utterly destroying such things as women's sports. Utterly destroying because of a myth because of a definition of liberty that's not a definition of liberty, it is a definition of anarchy because it is rooted not in ordered liberty, it's rooted in autonomy, self-rule. Go check the book of Judges. Five times they did what was right in their own eyes. So what we have is not ecclesiastical magisterium. What we have at work is not biblical magisterium any longer. And the church has fallen prey to cultural magisterium. Which is why the Apostle Paul says in Romans 1.16, I am eager to preach the gospel at, to you at Rome. And I am not ashamed to preach the gospel. For in it the power of God is revealed from faith to faith. In it, the righteousness of God is revealed. I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God and the salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and the Gentile. And in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. Why would he say he's not ashamed of it? Well, people say it to me all the time. They'll say, well, pastor, he says he's not ashamed of it because he loves the gospel. Well, I love my wife. I never have found myself introducing her. Hi, me, Cindy. I'm not ashamed of her. If I did, that would probably be the last time I would introduce Cindy. I better sleep light that night. No, what he is saying is what he's saying. He's been to the cultural power center of Ephesus. He's been to the sexual anarchy and immorality center of power in Corinth. He has been to the power demonstrated in the colony of Philippi. 
He has been to the place where they started putting Christians to death in Thessalonica. And he says, this is the power of God. The power of God that addresses the economic power in Rome, the military power, the political power. You will try to silence me and shame me into silence. You will not do it. And I invite my brothers and sisters to join the company of the unashamed. And that's what he's doing. Because the culture of insanity, absurdity, lethality, and immorality rooted in profitability. At Ephesus, when the culture started changing as a result of the lives of believers changing, and they quit doing idolatry, what happened? Economic problems, silversmith, what happened? Persecution, what happened? Violence. And he saw the power of God through the gospel take that on. You live in that culture today. They haven't targeted the lives of believers, but increasingly and intentionally, the culture shapers today, not the church, with its evangelism and discipleship and transformation of believers to solve the earth life of the world. Now the culture shapers, the media, big business, big government, academia, and the entertainment industry. There's your culture. we got to get back to making disciples, including them in the leadership of every one of us to do. And we can do so because the love of Christ compels us with a biblical love for our country. Not a love of idolatry. Not a love of nationalism but a love of a nation under King Jesus and sending it right in to the throat of those seats of power. Big business, would you like to know how much money is made off pornography? Would you like to know how much money is made off of sexual anarchy? Would you like to know how much money is made out of the alphabet of the LGBTQAI plus movement? Would you like to know the money made out of transgenderism? It not only is a culture of insanity, absurdity, lethality, just, I just did a program on a bill promoted in the state of Maryland that you, that the mother can have the right to kill the child 28 days after the birth. Do you realize the industries that are being built around this? Well, there's only one answer. And that answer is not in the nostalgia of nationalism. It is in the love of a nation that brings the claims of King Jesus to the gospel. And making disciples, teaching them to observe all the God commandments. So we want to say, uh, so. Cancel culture. Cancel culture. So will you be shamed? You can't understand that Romans 1, unashamed. You can't understand if you get to the end of Romans 1 when it says that they shamelessly embrace the sin. You see, they shamelessly embrace sin, calling evil good and good evil. And then they what? 
they can cancel and shame the church in silence. And Paul said, not shame. You won't cancel me. I'll speak. I'll speak in love, but I'll speak the truth. And I am going to proclaim the whole counsel of God. I am going to preach it, and I am going to teach it. Now, why is this important? Because one of the ways you learn is by having models and mentors in life. That's why I wrote the book, Free Leadership, one of the reasons You need models for your life. And you can't get models from the present. Do not choose your models from the present. Harry, why not? Because the last chapter hasn't been written. You don't know how they're going to end. Choose your models from history. But remember this. Every model that you're choosing to learn from is imperfect and sinners saved by grace. Therefore, we not only say no to a cancel culture because, let me say something, there are unbelievers who were so affected by common grace, there is a lot I can learn from them. And there are, there are, uh, I mean, I agree with Raymond. I'm, I'm sorry, I have arguments with guys all the time. I cannot squeeze Thomas Jefferson into salvation. I hope he was. I know he heard the gospel because John Adams told him to do it regularly. And I hope he was, but I don't think he was. But I, I agree with Reagan when he had a whole group of doctors and philosophers in the, in the dining room of the White House. And he said, this is, this is the greatest selection of brain, of intellect uh, in the White House since Thomas Jefferson ate dinner in this same room alone. I mean, no doubt he was ready. And there's much that I would learn from him. I'm glad that others were around to keep him from leading us into the anarchy of the French Revolution. But, I, but there is much to learn from him. So you can learn from common grace models, redemptive models. All of them will be imperfect. None of them will be perfect. You only have one perfect model. Hebrews 12, 1. Since we have been surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every, every sin, every entangling sin, every besetting sin. Let us lay aside every weight that would weigh us down. Let's learn from them. Who are them? They're the guys listed and the women listed in Hebrews chapter 11 that Paul the faith. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read that, there's some guys in there, and I kind of wonder, how did they make it? And the answer is grace. And they're given to you for Romans 15. These things I have recorded for your encouragement and your instruction. And what do you learn to do? You don't cancel someone out because of their individual sin or their besetting sin. What do you learn to do? You learn to learn from their blotches and learn from their beauty spots. They have beauty marks that you learn from, and they have blotches that you don't want to give room in your life. And that's how you learn from the models. So that what we then have is, this, is the opportunity to learn even from our founding fathers. 
And now you've got to rewrite even history because no one knows history. And so something like the 1619 project is just produced. And then you've got, uh, you got this sense of not understanding the founding fathers. You know, when Peter takes us and Stephen takes us, we go through the faith, we take people to faith and freedom walls to Philadelphia, never got to do it. And, uh, uh, and we stand in that room with all the replications of the people that were there. Uh, and uh, I just, I just marvel. Do you have any people we've had in America that have? Less than two million. Less than two million. And I look at this election that gave us three unbelievable documents and the American experience and the American spirit. The Declaration of Independence, declaring our independence, the Constitution that ordered our independence so we didn't become dead hearts just like France. And then the Bill of Rights that has matured and maintained our independence with the First Amendment as a lead Bill of Rights and its five declarations. And I look at these guys. I mean, we were so stupid. There's another almost two million that we ruled out the African Americans and the slave trade. But even what was left that you're using from, it was it's, uh, it's astonishing what they put out. Now I ask, do you know how many people we have today? We have 360 million. Do you think you could replicate the people in that room in the halls of power in Washington today? No. So I'm going to learn from them. I'm going to understand why the Declaration of Independence was read in the Parliament at England, Horace Walpole and the Parliamentary stood up and said this. Well, that does it. Cousin America has just run them off with a Presbyterian parson. They were talking about a man who came here and decided to love this country and had only been here just slightly over but a disciple, at least 13, I would say 14, either formally or informally, of the men in that constitutional conference. His name was John Witherspoon. His name was John Witherspoon. That was the Presbyterian parson they were referring to. Now, by the way, I'll settle for that as parson. I just want a parson to do something that would uh, actually equip people for the public square and public theology as Peter and Stephen are leading us with this effort. So I believe, I, I, let me finish. Uh, so here's just some basic observations. It's a basic observation. Do I think the founding fathers were perfect? Absolutely not. If I could have gone back, I would not for the sake of signing the Constitution, I mean the Declaration of Independence, I wouldn't have backed off on the, uh, I wouldn't have backed off and compromised on the abolition of child slavery. I, I wouldn't have done it. I would just try, I would have done everything I could for everybody to get on board, but I do not believe you can compromise the dignity of men and women made in the image of God in order to get the political documents signed. I just don't believe you should. But I also realized that there were some there that did so and had other strategic things that I look at. And uh, for instance, the first draft, life, liberty, and property. But then those that wanted to slavery abolish said, no, 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 we can't do that because that would enshrine African Americans 
a chattel slavery because they were considered what? Property. Thus came the phrase pursuit after. And some of those who wanted to do it said, we'll do this because we believe with these statements of this declaration, we are putting a cultural time bomb in which chattel slavery cannot survive this now, what they were hoping for was a political and spiritual solution to this. But they didn't get that. We ended up with a war and all the consequences of eradicating the violence that are still with us to today. So I don't believe they're perfect. I don't want to idolize them. But I am amazed at what they did. I'm amazed that the founding fathers were believers, and I'm amazed that the common grace demonstrated in those that were unbelievers. I would have given anything in the 1850s when we Presbyterians had the best preachers in America. But they got so enculturated in the Southern culture that instead of dealing with chattel slavery for what it is, man stealing, they began to make an apology for it, borrowing from an economic servitude called indigenous servitude. I would give you anything. I believe 700,000 lives could have been saved if those preachers had preached what they needed to preach instead of, instead of being affected by the culture. I learned from guys like George Washington Carter, Booker T. Washington, the advanced mistake. I would love to talk to you sometime about this meeting and the impact these two men had for 50 years in that university. But today they've been canceled. Lincoln's canceled. Stephen, I'm sorry, Grant's been canceled. They've all been canceled. Because of the arrogance of the present culture and the inability to see that truth can be recognized, that reveals the blotches from our laws that we avoid and the beauty bars that we embrace with our eyes fixed not on laws, but our eyes fixed on Jesus. That's why Paul said to Timothy, follow me as I follow God. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. With a cancel culture, we lose the opportunity for learning from history. Because we can only learn what today's culture tells us we are allowed to learn. You have to be governed by the love of Christ, the sovereignty of God, confidence in God. And you have to be able by God's grace, to eat meat and spit out thumbs as you learn from your lives in history. And those are the things that we get the opportunity to do with a history that is rooted in the sovereignty of God and the wisdom that the Spirit of God gives us to use the Word of God as our framework, as our filter, and as our foundation. God, thank you for the opportunity to be with my brothers and sisters. Would you now bless us uh, through, the, uh, through the ministry of Dr. Lillabat? Bless these 
folks in the ministries of their pastors. And Father, bless them as they become learners. From history, through imperfect models, with their eyes fixed on Jesus. This Jesus, who put the joy set before him, endured the cross, and despises the shame. This Jesus, who is the author and perfecter of our faith. This Jesus, who is our Savior and our Redeemer. This Jesus, to whom we want to be conformed. And thank you for the signpost of leaders from the past who are sinners, but saved by grace, are restrained by grace, from which we learn the beauty marks of grace and the void of the watches of sin. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, uh, Mr. Moderator, I yield my time to the previous speaker. <laughs> A wise person knows when not to speak, so I thought I should probably just sit down right now. But I do have a PowerPoint, so I can say I had a better PowerPoint than Harry had. How about that? <laughs> They're still laughing. Okay. Now, did that work? All right, good. Well... My purpose tonight is to help us to think about a really practical expression of what we're dealing with in a culture that wants to destroy our legacy as American Christians. My title is Marxism versus Christianity, and as I use the phrase from Scripture, the sins of the fathers, slavery, the original sin of the American founding fathers, question mark. Now, we all know that slavery is a real part of the American story, and I don't want to diminish that at all. In fact, uh, we know that, as we already heard, 700,000 lives were lost, not to mention, as Lincoln describes in his second inaugural address, that perhaps that was essentially the blood that was drawn from the backs of slaves that was being requited by the soldiers that were drawn by the sword. It's a, a blight on the American story. Very devout people are on all sides of it. That issue that is part of our story now is one of the reasons why we have to learn to address a very foundational question. And that is, how do we interpret our nation as Christians in the way in which this issue is being assaulted? So the text that I want to put before you, I'll make sure we're current. Good. Let me just read it. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. When Paul said those words, he was a tremendously weak individual, a minority but he believed he had a power that came from God that he could take on 
The thinking, the words, the ideology of the great Roman Empire and other religious leaders and traditions around him. And so the question for us at our day is, how will we take on the challenge that comes to us? If we were to summarize it very easily, America is an evil nation. It was born on the backs of slaves. We don't have a right to have anything that we have that we should simply be ashamed. And that's the truth of our history. Marxism and Christianity are vying for an interpretation. And we both must recognize that there is something called sin involved. The sins of the fathers, slavery, the original sin of the American founding fathers. And let us hear what the book of Deuteronomy says. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. From Deuteronomy chapter 5, verses 9 through 10. Are we dealing with a generational cycle of the evil of our founders that make us an evil people that God is judging? That's one way to look at it, and it's one of the ways we're being assaulted at this point. So I want to stop now before I begin to answer that question by putting this into a broader view of how we look at what's happened in American civilization. I'd like to describe very rapidly what would really be a whole seminary course on what we could call the modern church in America. But I want to plant several seeds so you can see there's a whole movement of ideas that are coalescing to shape where we are at this time. I call it the de-Christianization of America, even as there's been gospel growth. There are, if you will, two great struggles that have been going on right from the beginning of history, the city of God and the city of man. And those conflicting forces are part of our story. There's a lot we could say about the Reformation and the reaction to the Reformation called the Enlightenment, where reason was put in the place of revelation. The Lord broke in with a great awakening under the preaching of George Whitfield. And in this context is when the American Revolution came. But the revolution brought about some reassessment and the Christian thinking of a nation that identified with the new birth of Whitfield began to move toward what we call Unitarianism, a denial of the deity of Christ. And we had this struggle with America with what we call pluralism. All the different religious traditions, how do we put them together? What's going to be the ruling thought patterns? Well, we had a second great awakening. Uh, the name of Finney might come to mind, and we can debate some of his thinking. And then the Civil War came, which tore our nation apart, but also brought forth a lot of spiritual life. Surviving that struggle came a period that we call the Gilded Age in America, the time when there was tremendous wealth. Can you imagine a time where businessmen would not have to pay income taxes? Imagine if all of the success of business could be put to your own personal interest. That wasn't America like it. Giant mansions were built. Tremendous universities and ideas of colleges were built. And this was a time when progressivism was born. The idea that, well, maybe we're getting so much better than we were in the past that we're not like the people back then. We're now moving toward an era where there'll be a Christian century, a time when we'll all have godly ideas, we'll all get along together. In fact, we'll even outgrow our Constitution. 
will have a way to just be good and keep getting better. Pragmatism and the social gospel began to be part of who we were. Evolution said the survival of the fittest. We are evolving. There was the idea of the perfectibility of man. We're going to get to the point where one day there will be no more crime in America and wars will end. And so as this continued, this is part of the reason, tradition that's in this. In the wisdom of our leaders, they said, we need to get religion out of our universities. Can you imagine there was a time when every university required at least 50% of its board to be clergymen? They said, no more. The clergy, we can't have Harry readers on our university board. Got to get rid of guys like that. We're, we're improving. We have better ideas now. And the seminary must be thrust out. And so we begin to see all of these things, even as the church views the world and says we must reach the world for Christ. And we have the modern missionary movement that's been unparalleled in history, bringing the gospel and blessings of the West to the world. Isn't this amazing? All these things are going on side by side, the struggles. Well, the tradition continues on, the ongoing historical struggle. As men begin to teach the idea of we're getting better and better every day and every way, the infinite perfectibility of man, Protestant liberalism began to take hold, which said, we don't want to talk about sin anymore. Sin is not in us, it's in the society. If we could have a little more influence on the schools, on the streets, on the government, we'll make the world perfect. Higher criticism comes along, which says, we are smarter than the Bible. Some people believe the Bible's history. We know it's myth. It just has great principles that we can learn from it. Well, World War I comes along and shatters all those dreams. How can you say we're getting better and better every day in every way when the big guns of Verdun are destroying the finest young men of Europe? slaughtered by the power of the most mighty gunpowder ever put together by the great chemists of Europe and America. It's a tragic time. And so into this mix, we have some new forces that come as there's a reassessment of all of this. On the one hand, Freud comes along and the idea that we're actually irrational beings. We're made up of just conflicting emotions and that's who we really are. Marx comes along and says, it's not about truth, it's about power. Who's going to be in charge? And the Marxist ideology takes root. But even in the middle of this, there are the great evangelists. There's Moody and Billy Sunday, the fundamentalist movement, Bible colleges, the founder of our seminary, J. Gresham Machen, leaves Princeton and said, we're going to stand for the Bible, not against the Bible, because men are sinners and there is a word from God. The Great Depression comes that forces all of us as a nation to humble ourselves. And it's World War II that breaks the back of any hope of a perfectibility of mankind. And in here we see another great revival. I don't know if people really call it, speak of the Billy Graham revival. I think it was a great revival in America. Where after World War II, people were hungering for the gospel. And he was used by God to fill stadiums all around the world. A million people gathered in Korea to hear the gospel preach. Amazing. Campus crusade for Christ. 
Pastor John was part of that movement in his younger years. Evangelism explosion. Did you know that that ministry started here in Florida on the other side of the state? Is the only human organization to operate simultaneously in every known country ever in history? Not even the CIA has been able to say that. But a gospel ministry did. It's amazing. This is going on at the same time. And yet, in the middle of all that, we have the first sexual revolution, where the idea that sexuality and marriage should be totally separated. It should not be a commitment. It should be based upon pleasure. And so we see the decay in the early stages of the family. It's in this context that we begin to see the rise of the left. The Marxist ideas are beginning to take root in American intelligentsia, and it's playing into the university and the young students as they protest the war. And at this time, there's a great work written by Saul Alinsky. I urge every one of you to read it, called Rules for Radicals. Why should you read it? Well, it's one of the few books that's dedicated to Lucifer. How about that? That's who the book is dedicated to. And do you know two people who read it and it shaped their lives and their careers? Do you know who? One is Hillary Clinton and the other one is Barack Obama. They were deeply influenced by Saul Alinsky. What is that theory? The end justifies the means. There is no transcendent value by which you measure yourself. It's if you're getting what you want, it's okay if you think the end is good. That's a foundational Marxist tenet, and it's put mainline into our culture. Well, we see the birth of humanism earlier taking root. We call it secularism. Today, we might call it the new atheism. As a result, there's the conflict between abortion and pro-life, the emergence of Francis Schaeffer and James Dobson fighting for the family, the effort for Martin Luther King to bring about final authentic civil rights but Supreme Court rulings banishing the Bible, banishing prayer, getting rid of clergy, not just now from universities, but from even ministering in the public school or even a teacher saying the name of Christ unless it's in a curse word in an English book. We see these things unfolding and then there's the Reagan revolution where there's an attempt to bring back some sanity. The Alliance Defending Freedom comes on the scene an attempt to bring about an answer to all the efforts from the American Civil Liberties Union that wants to destroy historic freedoms. Uh, Dr. Kennedy, Dr. Dobson, Larry Burkett, and others got together and said, we need to do something. When these cases keep coming to the courts, there's no one to defend our side. We don't show up and we lose them all. Today we're winning many of them, precisely because someone is standing in the breach. Into the middle of this, there's ideologies and ethics, situation ethics, values clarification. You must tolerate everything. Self-love is the greatest love of all. I found the greatest love of all. It's happening to me. You've heard that. That's narcissism. Even as that self-interest is overwhelming, tremendous church renewal is going on. You see the conflict and the swirling of things? Well, it's into this mix we now come close to where we are. We've always, all the way through our story, been filled with swirling tensions between gospel advance and unbelief, the city of God and the city of man in conflict. And so neo-Marxism has now come of age. We see it in the critical theories 
that are in every hand. There's a critical theory of race, the critical theory of gender, the critical theory of wealth. It's a form of a new kind of Marxism we'll talk about in a moment. And this has helped give birth to what we call the second sexual revolution, which now it's not about separating sexuality from marriage. It's about separating sexuality from gender. Whatever you want goes, and we can do it medically, we can do it by choice. And all of this goes along with something that's never happened in human history before, which is the omnipresence, the ubiquity of social media that's able to become the catechizer of our children. Your children are spending anywhere, your grandchildren, anywhere from six to 10 hours a day on a device called a smartphone using social media where they're being catechized in the values that are diametrically opposed to the things you cherish as a Christian. We've seen the merging of big tech, government and academia, and the church is in the mid, all of this, trying to figure out how do we deal with the universal politicization of everything, even as COVID has descended upon us. That's quite a quagmire, isn't it? But what do we do with that? Well, we want to focus in in the fact that we are always in a state of conflict. The city of God and the city of man are vying. And I want to focus specifically on the neo-Marxism or cultural Marxism briefly and then apply it to that question of slavery. We'll get to that point of the alleged original sin of America. So as we begin to ask the question then, if this is the moment of the conflict between the city of God and the city of man with all of these ideological forces, what is it that neo-Marxism believes and how does it work its way out into our culture and lives? First of all, let's recognize that Marxism is always totalitarian. It wants to touch everything. It wants to destroy all government, destroy the family, destroy private property. That was right in the Communist Manifesto from the beginning. Absolutely clear. And the idea is that we want to have everything under one uniform control, the government until we finally don't need the government anymore. You talk about a utopian pipe dream. Can you imagine a communist dictator saying, you don't need me anymore, let's just run ourselves? A day will never come. But this is the core, ultimately, of the cancel culture and the silencing. Big government that wants to control everything does not want to have an opponent. It does not want to have a critic. It wants to silence every assault. The revision of Marx's original dialectical materialism is due to the failure of Marxism. Marx said the workers of the world need to reunite and he expected that all the industrialized nations would have tremendous force to overthrow their governments, but the only place it happened were in feudal societies like Russia, which didn't even have a middle class, didn't have it. Why? Because capitalism worked. You, had a, you could buy a car, you'd send your kids to college, you could go to Disney World, you could even have a 501 retirement plan. You know, it's, a, it's, it's amazing what was happening, and it didn't work, and so there were men in both Italy and Germany, the Frankfurt School under uh, Marcuse and Italy under Gramsci that said we need to reappraise why Marxism has failed. And they said it's not merely economic, it's cultural. 
We still want the revolution. We still want to destroy what we hate. But there's a better way to go after it. And so the conflict, you remember dialectical materialism says, there is no spirit. Everything is material. And it's by this thesis, antithesis, synthesis triad. There's a position that creates an opposite. They're in conflict. They synthesize. They go forward. It creates a new opposite. Conflict is the essence of everything. And that is how it will move forward. It's now an ideological structure, uh, struggle in the neo-Marxist mind within culture. And that's why it has been called cultural Marxism. And yes, its great dictum is the end always justifies the means. There's nothing else that does. So if you have to lie once in a while, if you have to steal once in a while, if you have to uh, use violence once in a while, if you have to cheat in elections once in a while, it's all okay. As long as what you're trying to get is good. And what we want is a brave new world where everyone is utterly equal. And so it continues the language of the oppressor and the oppressed. That motif continues. And you've often heard, why is it we're always criticized and we bring out, what about you? There's no answer. That's part of the ideology. The oppressor has no rights. We don't care what you think. You're the villain. We need to destroy you. If you're complaining, you don't think it's fair. Tough luck, because we're out to destroy you. That's why no one hears your critique. Well, what about you? It doesn't matter, because you're the evil one. Precisely because you're white. Precisely because you're a Christian. Precisely because you're middle class or higher. Precisely because you're an American. Precisely because you're straight. You're evil. And we have to destroy what you have. I wish I was making this up. I'm not. This is what is at the core of cultural Marxist ideology. The issues that are emphasized today are words that we all would, in a way, resonate with. Well, what's social justice? It sounds so beautiful. Justice is a very, very biblical word. But social justice means I need to take what you have however way I can and give it to somebody else. It doesn't mean I'm going to give you what I've got. But if you've got more than this person, I'm going to find a way to take it from you and give it to them. I'll use whatever means I need. That's social justice. It's the redistribution of wealth and power by any means available. It's a Marxist technique. And so we find it specifically in the areas of race. And that's why slavery will become such an important theme. But it's in the area of religion and wealth, sexuality, gender, handicap. Equality of outcomes is the desire, rather than the equality of opportunities. Equality of opportunity means we're going to make sure you know the language, you learn the basic skills, that you are not kept from an opportunity to advance and we will have a meritocracy. You do well, you advance, we'll encourage you. That's not what we want. We want everybody to be exactly the same. When you go into a post-communist country, you know you're in a post-communist country when you walk down the street and everything looks exactly the same. There's no architectural design. There's no color. No. You're forced to be identical. Now, this brings us yet another word that we maybe have heard, maybe we've not heard. But it's developed, it's the word intersectionality. What it means is that these different areas that are emphasized in cultural Marxism overlap so that you can have a black, Muslim, poor, 
homosexual, uh, changed person who's a handicapped person, and they have extraordinary authority and culture because of all the things that intersect in their life by which we're oppressing them. They are the ones we need to listen to. In other words, because of your status allegedly as a victim, you are the person that has full authority to tell the truth. So what we find then, as all of this comes to touch where we are at this moment, are things like politically correct speech. It's been a cultural Marxist dictum from the beginning. We must control the language that people use. Do not talk about the womb. I was just talking to a physician today. He said, we are now hearing uh, medical students are saying, do not talk about a baby in the womb. We can't use the word womb anymore. It's too emotional. Uh, that means, how do you tell the story that John the Baptist leapt in his mother's womb? You can't read that in a medical school because you are violating someone's rights to have a neutral view of life. Uh, we all are feeling the question about black lives matter. Do they? Of course they do. But you're not allowed to ask the question, what about black lives in the womb? Oops, can't say that word anymore. What about black lives in urban centers? Do they matter? Stop. Can't talk about that. LGBTQ plus rights. They become triumphal over everything. Many years ago, I had the opportunity to read an article when the first state Supreme Court declared that same-sex marriage would be legal. It was in the state of Massachusetts. Now, they had a provision that that law could not become operational for a period of time because they had to let a certain time pass before the uh, Constitution was amended. But the attorney that argued the case all the way to the top said this, and I remember reading it, and I felt the chills go down my spine. He said, let it henceforth be known that never again in America will religious liberty trump sexual liberty. He said, that's, that's, that was when it began, and he's proven to be true. Our liberties as Christians, our consciences don't matter. So we hear these things. What about the idea of white guilt? When you really work with issues of race today as it flows from the cultural Marxism, the popular word is the word woke. When you're really woke, that is, you've been wakened from your sleep and you're ready to fight because of all the oppression that's on your life, you look at white people and say, you ought to feel guilty because you're white. You're the reason everything's so bad. You're guilty. You're white. Now, that's pretty hard. How do I change being white? Does anybody know how to do that? Anybody give me any insight? There's no cure for my guilt. I am condemned with no remedy other than to become part of a works culture where I cannot say I'm not a racist. No, no, you can't say you're not. By being white, you're a racist. Just being who you are. You're part of a system that corrupts the, the race structure. So the only thing you can do is get involved and stop it. You have to be a radical or else there's no forgiveness for you. Shame on you for being white. Wow, that's tough. What we have here then is a structure in which power and feeling trump justice and reason. I had a, one of our adjunct professors by the name of Brian Madsen. If you come across Brian Madsen's, uh, some of his op-ed pieces he writes are very, very effective, very well. He says the problem as you deal with a Marxist 
is that they cannot reason with you. They will not reason with you. They've already canceled your reason. You cannot reason with them. They are worse than Christians ever were as blinded fundamentalists. I hate to say that. This is a fundamentalist ideology that says there's no talking to anybody. Classic liberalism in the Western sense of saying, you have a position, I have a position, let's debate them between each other, and if you think I'm stupid, I can think you're stupid, and we can go about our business afterwards because we share the same culture, the same civilization. That kind of liberalism, which is actually very good political liberalism, it's dead. It was a byproduct of Christian teaching of, through the golden rule. Do unto others as you'd have them do it. You don't want someone to silence you, so you don't silence someone else. Let's make your case. Come, let us reason together, the Lord says. Let's, let's talk it out. Let's see what this truth is. Well, it's not that. It's about power and about feeling. And there is no reasoning. And this is why the educational battle is so serious. Because if our children are trained to not use critical thinking, the pursuit of truth, but just simply to feel and seek power, we're in, we're in for a huge problem. And that's part of where we're going now. So let's take a look at this fact. Some of you might say, wow, you're really a radical. I guess I'm a radical. I'm the rules for radical in reverse for Saul Alinsky. I don't dedicate my book to Lucifer, or if I wrote it, I dedicate it to Jesus Christ. Why? Because when you compare Marxism and Christianity, they are polar opposites. For Marxism, there's no God. The state is God. When there's no God, you're going to have to have someone in charge. So the bigger the government, the more wonderful it is until we finally allegedly won't need the government. Christianity says God is the Trinity, and God is over government. By necessity, Christianity limits the government because there's a transcendent authority. For Marxism, there can be no word of God. We have the Bible. God has given his word. For Marxism, there's no spirit. They're dialectical materialists. There's only matter, and at the end of the day, you're here for a moment and you're gone. It doesn't matter. Life is not sacred. It's this movement for the future that we're part of, and we're trying to bring in a better world through power and influence. For the Christian, humans are both matter and spirit. We have souls that will never die. For the Marxists, there's no gospel. Religion is the opium of the people. It's just to blind us, to numb us. But for the Christian, the gospel of Jesus Christ brings true religion, which is knowing God in Christ. For the Marxist, sin is having power and wealth, and therefore your power and wealth must be taken and removed from you. For the Christian, sin is a violation of the will of God, and power and wealth can be good, and authority and property are to be respected. Salvation for the Marxist is taking power and redistributing wealth. For the Christian, salvation is the gospel of Christ. For the Marxist, conflict is necessary, inevitable, and should be fomented. For the Christian, we're to pursue reconciliation and forgiveness. And sometimes we have no way to avoid the struggles of this world. But as much as lies within me, I will live at peace with all men. For the Marxist, the end justifies the means. For the Christian, the end does not justify the means. God's word and God's will establish the eternal standard. And therefore, the Marxist, uh-oh, I'm in trouble, aren't I? Okay, anti-family, anti-property, 
pro-abortion, whereas the Christian is diametrically opposed. Why do I go through that, that specifically? Because I want to make this point. An evil tree produces evil fruit, and a good tree produces good fruit. How can you take these ideas from Marxism and integrate them into your Sunday school curriculum, which churches all across America are doing? Because they say, well, they're good techniques. They're taking the poisonous fruit from a tree of death and serving it in a place where the tree of life is to be a place of nourishment. We are blinded, and we have to have the courage to say, thus says the Lord. And so critical theories, they come from Marxism, and therefore they bring their ideological unbelief and all the byproducts that come with it. Marxism, as we've seen, is a full denial of biblical Christianity. And so you can see the step here. Marx and neo-Marxism have no God, no scripture, no uh, biblical sense of justice, only social justice. They, all forms, believe in the revolution, whether it is violent or gradual. They all seek, all forms, to overthrow the family. And you can see some of the byproducts, which is that we need to influence the school. And at the end... Their desire is to have a universal, omnipotent government that brings us into a socialistic structure where we're all the same. I could talk about each of those points at length. So finally, with that background, I'm now ready to address the question. Okay, it's a long introduction. America is evil. It has always been an oppressor nation committed to slavery. How do we respond Is it true that America early on, it is true. We know it. We accept it. Does this mean that the nation is inherently evil? Can we stop for a moment and ask the question, what can sin really be if you're a Marxist? Who says something is, sin means a violation of the will of God and you don't have a God. So you have to define This idea is, well, it's a violation of my sense of my power. Marxism is simply human power demanding you to kowtow to its view. It calls it evil. But all it is is saying, I want you to unilaterally disarm and let me be the lord of your life. And that's where I love the the language I heard from Dr. Reeder. Here I stand. God's word is true. I am not ashamed. You know, I say this to my black friends, never apologize for being black. I say it to my Asian friends, never apologize for being Asian. I say it to all the white folks here tonight, never apologize for being white. Say, I'm made in the image of God. We're all one race under God. I have dignity because God, I am a sinner. My forebears like me, we've all fallen short. But I have an eternal soul that never dies. And Martin Luther King Jr. was right when he said, I have a dream. I have a dream that on those red hills of Georgia, one day former slaves and free men will bring their children together and they'll walk together in peace and harmony. And they will not judge a man on the color of his skin, but on the content of his character. I can preach that because that's biblical thinking. We're made in the image of God. We're all one race. Marxism wants to divide us. Our founders understood this. 
Div divided we fall, united we stand. They were quoting Jesus. Jesus said, a house divided against itself cannot stand. How do we come together? The point here then that I want to make, and I need to make sure, Mr. Sp Moderator, how many more minutes do I have till I need to stop? Uh, ten minutes, maybe? I got it? Okay. Am I, am I reclaiming the years that the locust has eaten? <laughs> I don't know how that applies here. Okay. <laughs> okay. That's good. Well, the, here's the point that needs to be made. This claim is a selfish, unhistorical, unscholarly assertion that diminishes the great leaders who stood strongly for the truth of human dignity and freedom and every one of those brave individuals who died to end the scourge of slavery. Do you realize what we're doing? We're spitting on the heroism of the Civil War. America's evil. Say that to a man who said, I died because the slave is my brother. Most of the men who died in the battle for to free the slaves had never had a slave or even seen one. They did it because on the principle it was right. I'm not here to judge the North or the South. We all get caught up in our cultural sins. But the point is that with the vantage point of history, we can see that there's a lot more here. So my remaining time, I have lectures I could give on every one of these names. I only have eight minutes left now. Let me try to summarize some of the things here of what I would like to say. American leaders who stood for human freedom and against slavery... When you hear someone say America is an evil nation, it stood for slavery, right from the beginning, you need to say, okay, what did John Adams say about slavery? He said, I pray for the day that here in America that everyone will be free, that the enslaved people of the world will come here and not be unchained. I quotes to this end. Uh, George Mason from Virginia, he said, we need to end the slave trade. It's wicked. John Quincy Adams, the son of John Adams, who, by the way, John Quincy Adams, a very thoroughgoing evangelical Christian, he was one of the few of our presidents who went back into politics after being elected. He went back into Congress. You know why? He wanted to give his time so he could end slavery in America. He would get up whenever he could, and he would speak against it in Congress. And you know what they did? They passed the gag rule. There were masks that they put on back then, not because of COVID, but to shut you up. If you're a slave man, they would not recognize you. And he said, I'm going to stand until the day comes when I hear that gag rule is ended and we can continue to speak. Okay, There's a lot that we could say about that. By the way, Abraham Lincoln got elected to Congress for one term, then he got booted back out, he got lost. And he said his most memorable moment is when he heard John Quincy Adams get up and speak against slavery. Well, he became the president that led in that regard. Well, how about this? Uh, there's, I, I love to go through this, but Thomas Jefferson, as we know, was a slave owner. But did you know, to his credit, in the original draft of the Declaration of Independence, he had a substantial paragraph that he offered to America to end the slave trade. To end it. He, he was a slave owner. He said, it's time we do it. 
When you're getting ready to tear down the statue of Thomas Jefferson because he's a slave owner, do you know that he actually was the first person who had the courage to go into government and say, we need to end it? And he fumed when they made that an expunging move along with 80 or so other corrections to his document. He was not happy about that. I love the, the uh, family of Henry Ward Beecher and Harriet Beecher Stowe. We could talk about Uncle Tom's cabin and the power of that. When Abraham Lincoln met Harriet Beecher Stowe, he said, so you're the little woman that started this big war. She was a daughter from a parsonage, and she heard her very eloquent father preach about the dignity of all human beings and how slavery needed to end. She would never be a soldier, but you know the pen is mightier than the sword. And she wrote a book that shaped a nation. What are we doing with our pens, our voices? I'm not ashamed, I will speak. Uh, there's others, we have radicals like John Brown. I don't recommend anybody to try to take over a government installation and protest. But you know, I love the name of, I think if I have my story correctly about Henry Clay. Henry Clay, I believe from Kentucky, I could be wrong on my history, someone can correct me on this, is that right? Yeah. He decided the point came where he needed to speak against slavery as a political leader. And they said, Senator Clay, this will cost you your chance to be president. You know what he said? I'd rather be right than president. God help us to have leaders like that. Okay, Robert E. Lee, they're tearing down a statue. Do you know that he, on his own, freed his slaves? I think the date Harry could help, 1856 or something like that? 57. That's before the Civil War. He, because he thought it was wrong. Robert E. Lee, you want to attack him? He was ahead of his time. He, he, he was struggling. He said, how do I lead an army against my home country, my, my family, my, my state? He could have served on either side. He was asked by Lincoln to lead and by the South to lead. But he was an anti-slavery man. Do we give him his credit? Does anybody speak? The only person I know that speaks up for him is Dr. Reeder, so thank you, sir. Abraham Lincoln said more than once, he said, I would rather be assassinated on this spot than to yield my commitment for the freedom of the slave. And he was assassinated. He knew what was at work. There's so much I could say about that. Why am I telling you these stories? Do you realize every one of these people are being insulted? And you say, we are just a wicked slave-owning nation. There are people that paid extraordinary prices from the very earliest years to stand. Further, there was a struggle. I think Harry has put it well when he said there was a conflict in the Declaration right from the beginning that America began to wrestle right from the Revolution. If we don't want to be slaves, because that's what's happening with the king of England trying to enslave us, take, how can we have slaves? That tension was woven into the story of America. And so slavery will become a metaphor. And I'll just tell a couple or two or three quick stories here as I wrap up. I think all of us ought to have a moment at some point to read Governor Bradford's account of Plymouth Plantation, the story of the pilgrims and the Puritan settlements in New England. There was a point in their work 
where the famine was so great that they decided to put a socialistic pattern in place. Everybody worked for everybody else and everybody had everything equally. And they discovered that their crops and their harvests went down, their attitudes got worse and worse. And the whole culture, many of them serious Christians, were beginning to come unglued. And Governor Bradford said, I'm changing my policy. Everybody may plant their own fields, grow as much as they want, keep what they want. And you know what? It worked. People were happy. There was more food than necessary. Those that were hungry because of good reason were helped happily. Socialists want us to take back to the failed experiment of our founders that tried to be socialists and it failed. Read it in Governor Bradford. He said, that was a form of slavery. Do you feel the contradiction of that? Those that are attacking us as socialists, saying we are a slave nation, our very story says what you're trying to do is enslave us with your socialistic policies. It never works anywhere. It's never worked anywhere and never will. It's inconsistent with the human spirit and reality. Uh, there's a concern about slaves to passion. I've quoted here uh, Martin Luther King Jr.'s great words in his dream. I would love to talk more about that, but let me stop and just say these last two. Herbert Hoover, you know that name? Did you know he proposed that the United Nations be re-established without the communists present? He said, we cannot have United Nations as long as there are those that do not believe in God. They do not have a moral structure that will enable civilization to operate. Okay, my hero, George Washington. He was a slave owner. But did you know he's the only slave-owning president by who, his own initiative who freed his slaves in his own will and provided for them? I often say, when you attack George Washington, you want to take down his statue because he's a slave owner? Okay. But you need to realize that every other southern or northern, and there were northern slave owners that had followed Washington's example, there had never been a civil war. Washington said, I'm going to free my slaves by my own volition. Robert E. Lee followed his example. And so there's a lot that we can learn from here. So as we wrap it up tonight... My conclusion is simply this. We are a nation with a deep scar running through it. But let's tell the story truthfully. And let's recognize why it's been made an issue. Hadn't we made a lot of progress? Hadn't the civil rights movement brought us to a point where black and white and Asian were actually working together? In the name of this wickedness, what they're doing is terrible. And that, my friends, is the very strategy of this ideology. It's why we need to be wise. Our weapons are not of the flesh, but we take every thought captive. Tonight I wanted you to put handles on these thoughts and take them captive and not let them captivate you. Okay, thank you. Let's go to questions. <clears throat> We have been here for a little more than an hour and a half and listened to how much content in that hour and a half. 
Can you imagine taking a week-long class at Westminster Theological Seminary, six to eight hours a day, with this level of content? That's what it's like. So uh, no doubt, everything that you've heard has provoked some uh, questions, some thoughts, some reactions. So I'm going to invite both our speakers to, uh, when he get, gets untangled over there, uh, <laughs> which might take a minute, to come uh, and uh, join us here at the table. And... Um, Let's see what kind of questions we might have. And uh, so that everybody can hear, how about if I be the roving uh, microphone guy? Anybody have any questions for either of our speakers tonight? Uh, let's start with her, with Peggy, and then sir, we'll come over to you. Hi, I look at this whole thing and I have to say, I don't think we're doing so well in this country. We seem to be going worse and worse and worse and worse. And yet I believe in the providence of God. How do we reconcile this? Is this God's will? All right. So, first of all, being a biblical Christian, we want to let the scriptures guide our response. And we know that, first of all, the scriptures say God works all things according to the counsel of his own will. Scripture says he declares the end from the beginning. He knows every day of our lives before there was one of them, every hair on our head. He sees the sparrow that falls to the ground. The boundaries of the nations are established by the Lord, the raising up of kings and the tearing down of kings. How is that all possible? It's because God's purposes are not precisely what we think history ought to be. It is, at the end of the day, his purposes. And his purposes are to take what meant evil, what, what they mean for evil, as Joseph said, and bring good through it. And so the best example of that that we can find, ultimately, is the cross of Jesus Christ. There's never been a more unjust act in history than the Lord of glory coming to serve and save, being rejected and crucified without even a decent uh, chance to defend himself. He suffered, and all of that was wrong. But would we not look at the cross? In fact, some of you are even wearing crosses tonight, I noticed. That evil, utterly unjust act is a tool by which God has accomplished something that's extraordinary. That is ever what God is doing. He is working his purpose. So that doesn't mean that what we see in itself is good or that we can explain it. But our hope and our confidence is that, as Paul will say in that great text of Romans 8, and 28 to the end, that we are more than conquerors through this, through him who loved us. Not life, nor death, nor enemies, nor sword, nor fire, whatever comes our way, all things are in God's hand, working in concert for the good that he has for his people. That's by faith we believe that. We have examples of it. We don't always see it in any specific case. So we don't know where the Lord is taking us, but we're going to trust him for that because that's what the word of God calls us to do. Harry, if you want to add to that. Yeah, it's. Um, uh, let me do. Let me say something my son would want me to say, um, and that is, um, there's a wonderful word that was coined by uh, J.R. Tolkien. It's eucatastrophe. <clears throat> a catastrophe is a catastrophe. You know what that is. But the EU is a Greek prefix that means good. Well, what Peter just mentioned to you is the greatest eucatastrophe in all of history. Men had God where they could put their hands on him and they crucified him. Yet in that sinful act, 
The sin bearer redeems all of his people from all of their sins for all of eternity and inaugurates the work of the kingdom and the gospel of the kingdom throughout the world. So as you see catastrophes, realize that God delights in making them you catastrophes for his people who trust him and serve him. That's what Joseph, Joseph was betrayed by his brothers. He was convicted in a kangaroo court by a woman whom he would not sin with. And she convinced her husband whom he had honored. He got thrown into prison. He ministered to two prisoners who abandoned him. And he ends up vice president of Egypt. Uh, But every time he went, he did for God the next right thing. And then at the end of it, when his brothers come fearfully back to him, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. So as man does his evil, God is at work in the tapestry of his providence. Our job is to every day do the next right thing. Secondly, we have got to guard what I believe is a major problem. The church, until the church is on mission, on message, and in ministry, you can't have a gospel awakening in a nation. And the church has got to understand its mission is not cultural transformation. Its mission is center transformation. Cultural transformation is the consequence. Once you make cultural relevance and cultural cultural transformation your motivation and your mission, then the culture will eventually define your message so that you would be accepted. And so progressive Christianity is cut from the same bolt of cloth as liberal Christianity And both of them end up with the culture dictating the message. So whatever your mission is will eventually define your message. So our mission is not church growth. If it is, you'll get a pragmatic gospel, put meat in the seats. Our mission is not self-esteem. Then you come up with a therapy gospel. Our mission is not cultural transformation. Then you come up with a social gospel. Our mission is sinners saved by grace and discipled with the whole counsel of God. The church's mission is narrow. Its message is comprehensive. And it turns out Christians whose whose mission is comprehensive. Whether you eat or drink, you do all to the glory of God because the church on mission, on message, in ministry, has equipped you. Now we've got salty salt and a bright light in the world. And when sinners change in their heart, their lives change, marriages change, families change, businesses change, citizenship changes. And that's how cultures are changed as a consequence. Dr. Reeder, you uh, mentioned Romans chapter 1, um, which, of course, uh, is sort of like the development of a uh, civilization. Um, when you read 
Romans chapter 1, you see three levels. First of all, they give up the glory of God, which then turns into sexual revolution. They give up the truth of God, which turns into sexual perversion. They give up the very knowledge of God, which then turns into total anarchy. Um, two questions. One, would you agree that America is farther into Romans chapter 1 than it has ever been before? And number two, can America come back out of it without a significant divine intervention of God? Uh, I got a feeling those are what we call rhetorical questions. I think he's already got my answer. Uh, so my answer is, I think if you take that, what I call the three verses of the death spiral of a culture, uh, unaffected by common grace and redeeming grace, that's what's being described. You've got the gospel revealed in verses 16 through 18. I mean, 16 through 17. You've got the, uh, you've got the wrath of God revealed in verses 18 through 34. And it gives you the three death spirals and the markers of you just sexual promiscuity, sexual perversion, and social approval, uh, whereby the sins are called right. They're shamelessly done. Answer, no. The only way that can be turned around is a gospel awakening. The only way to get a gospel awakening is a revived church. The only way you get a revived church is through godly leadership. Thus, support Westminster Seminary. Amen to that. Amen. Any other questions? Sir. Uh, I look at uh, history books, whether they're high school or this New York Times critical race book, uh, to see what they have in them. I would suggest you, Dr. Reeder, that you give Roger B. Taney, who was Chief Justice, uh, wrote the uh, Dred Scott decision, uh, credit the next time you present this, because he freed his slave, and he didn't put him out on the street. He offered him food and clothing and put him in the basement. He was an ardent Catholic, a widower, and took care of his children. And he's much maligned because the liberal people that write these history books exclude that. Another person, U.S. Grant, that was a better than average general in the Civil War, worked with slaves, a slave that he had inherited from his father, and after working for him, he freed him before the Civil War. So there's two marginal people. And as to the people that are here, uh, I would recommend, uh, if you've got grandchildren or children, uh, George Washington's Sacred Fire, uh, the author is here, Dr. Reeder, is... Uh, no, 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 no. Dr. Lilbeck. Okay. Dr. Reeder yeah, was right. a reader all right. of what I he wrote. You. I'm an imperfect Christian on that, but Pete knows me. Uh, I've not been to Philadelphia, but I know it's colder than it is here today. Uh, but books like you got to selectively not censor, but evaluate whether they speak the truth. Uh, Roosevelt killed uh, six million hogs in the slaughter of the innocent, and Harry Hopkins said, don't send them to the Ukraine with the Bolsheviks in the 30s. 
uh, it's a local matter. So history repeats itself. These things you don't find in American history books that are in our schools today. So maybe the project uh, for the church is to promote uh, books like uh, this George Washington's Sacred Fire. Uh, just a couple. Just a couple of thoughts. Uh, I do not believe that is the project of the church. I believe that could be a project of Christians, that the church is discipling. When we disciple people, then they go into various areas, and they then, those who can write history books, write history books. Those that go into prison reform, go into prison reform. Those who go into medicine, go into medicine. What we got to do in the church is disciple them. The Christian's mission is broad, and they go to their gifts and their passions. And, but the church does not, the church has its mission. The first general assembly was on a mountain, and Jesus said, go make disciples. That's what the reason that a barbarian in Europe, less than 25 years after the ascension of Jesus, said about Paul and his team, these people have turned the world upside down, was not because Paul went out to turn the world upside down. Paul turned sinners right side up, and sinners transformed, then turned the world upside down. Secondly, I believe that the uh, tiny court, well, I don't talk about the individual judges because I don't know them all well enough. Uh, and, uh, but I do believe the Dred Scott decision was unconstitutional, as unconstitutional as the Obergefell decision, as unconstitutional as the Roe v. Wade. I believe that there are about five decisions of the Supreme Court, of which Dred Scott was one of them, that were woven out of a fabric made of culture and politics and not the Constitution. Uh, and I believe we maybe have the best, at this moment, the best equipped Supreme Court we have had in probably 75 years. Um, finally, finally, uh, um, I, I, I love Grant. I talk about him, I lecture on him, but I, the difference, uh, Lee freed the slaves he inherited in his wife's estate in 1857 and Grant freed the slaves he inherited from his wife's estate in Kentucky in 1867 at the 13th and 14th Amendment. Okay, it is nine o'clock. We're gonna have one more question, and you'll be glad of that because I was just told there are refreshments back here. Yeah, how about this? Amen. Uh, I'm curious about your, uh, about your comments on this, but uh, I've observed that uh, it appears uh, with this uh, cultural situation we have today is that the first thing they're doing is going after our founders. Uh, and I think the ultimate result of that is then to reject the work of the founders, which was our Constitution. Curious about your comments. Let me just make this observation. <clears throat> we already have examples of high school teachers being fired for identifying language in the Declaration of Independence that referred to God. I mean, wait a second, that's our founding document. There are four times a, a teacher did that, and he said, you're not allowed to do that. And he said, why can't I do that? I'm just 
looking at our founding document. So they're already censoring in different school districts the ability to quote our founding document. So that is a desire. There is an embarrassment with the idea that there is truth in the world that is self-evident. They don't want to have self-evident truth. They want to have basically the ability to say, we'll tell you what to believe. So the notion that there is the ability to pursue what's real, to have the ability to know who is God, those, we got to get rid of all of that. So definitely get rid of the writers, their history, and after time uh, we can move away from the documents themselves if we possibly can. So I would, um, yeah, I think... I think it's a good analysis, obviously, I think you're on target. <clears throat> By the way, from the previous speaker, when he rightly and very wonderfully lauded Dr. Lilbeck's book, um, let me just tell you, you got to get this thing. Now, do not sit down to read it like a novel, okay? It reads well, but it's like 20 pages or two hours, whichever comes first. And uh, so you will benefit from it greatly. I got my talk I love to give called The Three No's of George Washington that gave you your country. And I got it all from Peter's research that had been really, really helpful. So I think it's a great book. And, uh, and I highly uh, encourage you, and I agree with, again with our speaker, if we could get that book into our classrooms, it would be extraordinary. So if I could put it this way, I had to edit my talk, believe it or not, and I told you there, were a, there is a cancel culture that we need to implement, and, um, and so let me tell you what that is in answer to your question. If you want to cancel the cancel culture, preach the gospel and its cancel culture, and you sing it in this church, I know you're singing leaders, <laughs> be of sin the double cure. Cleanse me from its guilt and its power. That's why I love to sing the glorious truth. Um, he cancels the power. I mean, I'm sorry. He breaks the power of canceled sin. And when men and women get right with God, they start pursuing what's right in life out of love to God. And that's our great mission and message and ministry as Christ church. Then we will turn out people that go into the academy, into the media, into journalism, into business, into government, uh, who make a difference for Christ and will not be canceled. Well, friends, before we... Uh, uh, have our closing prayer, have an expression of appreciation for both of our speakers. Thank you.